Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer, and this is my brother, Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the barrel oh, up, so to, up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guest like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, for years, we have humbly celebrated Women's History Month at QLS with a full month of fantastic female guests. This year, we say with pride that we have four multi-talented, award-winning ladies who kick down barriers. I'm talking Brittany Howard, Corinne Bailey Ray, and the incredible choreographer Fatima Robinson, and as well as Lettucey. Listen to QLS on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The saying used to be, behind every great man is a great woman. But considering my guest today, perhaps that should read, behind every great woman is a great woman. Huma Abedin is someone who has spent her entire career in public service. Her work with Hillary Rodham Clinton began as a young aide in the First Lady's office, then as a senior advisor to the Senator, Deputy Chief of Staff to the Secretary of State, and now as her Chief of Staff. Aberdeen's decades of collaboration with Clinton bring to mind Richard Nixon's farewell speech to his White House staff, who noted, quote, this house has a great heart, and that heart comes from those who serve. Now Huma Abedin has written an intimate and revealing best-selling memoir on her life entitled Both And. The book covers her time working in government, as well as her personal struggles, including a very public divorce from former Congressman Anthony Weiner. With such a substantial career in politics, I wanted to know if Abedin's upbringing is what set her on the path to where she is today. My mother is a sociologist. My father studied American civilization, which that's one of the reasons he ended up at Penn. They don't really teach it or have that course in many universities now. 
Yeah. And then they they're from two countries that were at war. And so they decided they got asylum here and moved to Michigan. And they my dad taught at Western Michigan. My mom taught at Kalamazoo College. How long were they living here before you were born or had you been born I was you were born here. I was born here, and when I was two, my and my, we thought we were going to stay here forever. I t- I actually I have this whole thing in my life about sliding doors. It's not maybe very healthy, but like what if, what if, what if? And I've often thought about what my life would have been like if I had lived that mis- midwestern life, which I almost did. But when I was two, my dad was diagnosed with basically you know terminal illness. He was renal failure, and his doctor said, you know, you have five to ten years and get your affairs in order. How long did he live after the diagnosis? Well, it's amazing. That doctor was exactly right. His kidneys survived 10 years to the day they failed. And it's one of the first lines I wrote in my book. My dad was told he was dying. I don't know if I ever want to see that doctor. It was amazing. I mean, but the difference between 1977 in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and thankfully nine years later, the possibility of getting on the transplant list became you know, something real, which only happened because my mother was so tenacious. So he then went on dialysis. So he lived till I was 17. But and, I, and when did you go over there? So two months after his diagnosis, my parents had an option to take a sabbatical and their choice was either Italy or Saudi Arabia. And, they and had, why Saudi Arabia? Well, interestingly, they had always decided, they had always thought they would go to Italy. They thought it would be this great adventure. They'd go to Italy. And then my father gets this diagnosis and he thought, you know, I want to teach my children about their culture, about their faith. We're a Muslim family. Mm -hmm. It seemed like more of an interesting, and it was, you know, just a year. So they said, why don't we do Saudi? It was definitely the hardest choice. My mother actually said when you know, my father said, let's go to Saudi. She's like, and I was two. She says, they even have diapers in that country. <laughs> and I think about how intrepid they were. They landed. They didn't speak the language. My mother all of a sudden had to veil herself. Why do you she think they chose me? I'm sitting there going, Italy, Saudi Arabia, Italy. It's, I think they decided that, you know, there they could, it was more of a challenge. And I think they liked that. My mother taught herself Arabic to teach her students. And then after a year, they actually decided to come back and then come back. And that was, you know, 44 years ago, they kept going Did they back. teach over there? My mother taught sociology. And my dad, you know, started very early on. He, he taught a few years, but very early on, he opened a foundation. And that's actually one of the reasons, even though the foundation was based in London, but it was a foundation that produced an academic journal that studied the condition of Muslims who lived as minorities around the world. And mm. my dad's expertise was actually in Russia. Well, back then it was the USSR, the Soviet Union. And, and it was his, you know, I, I often say this, you know, my father was really prescient about a lot of these issues. He basically said, look, if we don't figure out as Muslims how to live in the world the with the rise world. of the yeah. West, right. we're going to have problems. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he predicted Bosnia, predicted so much of what we're now, this these convulsions that we have. And in part, his theory was, look, if you are a practicing Muslim wherever you come from in the Arab world or, you know, through the Muslim world, and you choose to live in the West, you cannot go there and live in your own little bubble. That's just not, you're not, you have to, if you're going to go and live in France, you need to become French. And also you can do as the Romans do. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and that was the way he thought that we could succeed in this world. And, and I think he was right, seeing cer- certainly what's happened in the last what does, years. So he was working specifically in what during those 10 years when he was over there? Just a multitude of things. A multitude of things. A lot of his conversations were about interfaith dialogue. So mm-hmm. we would, like we spent one summer in Greece living in a monastery at a conference about, you know, Islamic, Christian, Jewish, you know, dialogue. And we'd sit at the table. And, and people, a lot 
lot of Muslims and certainly Arabs and people who lived in our world said, why, why do you do this? Why do you go and, you know, and they say, you know, they would tease him and say, why do you go have conversations, these provocative conversations where even the angels fear to tread? Mm-hmm. Why do you go have these you know, very contentious. And he says, because I want to understand and I want to know more about these other faiths and beliefs and, you know, kind of cis political systems. And I don't have any doubt in my own beliefs, but I want to learn more. And I think we probably have more in common than we realize. Now, for you, other than when you were maybe moving about and you mentioned Greece, for one, did you go to one school or did you concentrate on just a handful of schools when you were there? Where did you go to school, to high school? I went to an international school based on a British curriculum that my father and a few of the other professors at the university, because this was all brand new back in 1977 when we moved there. And you mentioned the oil money. Sure, there was all of this new wealth, all these amazing They were kind just of, figuring out how much wealth. They were just right. figuring out how much wealth. And they were building universities and building hospitals, but they didn't have the talent. That's why so much of this talent was imported mm-hmm. at the time. And my parents came in as part of that. They went shopping. Imported talent. Exactly right. <laughs> and so they helped start this school. And so it was a British school and it was international. It was actually one of the best things, Alec, that I think to be exposed to so many different cultures and languages and people from all over the world. It made me comfortable everywhere. And I think that was a big part of it was, you know, being surrounded by people who weren't like me. So when you, I mean, for Americans today, mm. you know, the, the Saudi Arabia is now a concentration of pilots who flew for 9-11. It's OPEC and a manipulation of oil prices. It's Khashoggi. I'm talking about the contemporary American view of that country. I mean, the United States certainly has a lot of blood on its hands for things that it's done. I'm not mentioning that to condemn the Saudis, but the United States is guilty of the the exact same things during its history as well. But set aside that back when you were there, what was your Saudi Arabia? What was your experience of the culture and the people? How did they strike you? You know, one of the very first things that really hit home when I moved to the United States in 1993, so I didn't come back. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia, and I, I didn't live in the United States until I came to university in 1993. One of the things I missed immediately is this sense of community. And we call it, you know, in the Muslim world, we call it the ummah. And the ummah is the ever-present community, which is you're never alone. So I tell stories in the book about how, you know, you go to a party and you say, I like your shirt. And, you know, the next thing you know, that shirt is sent to your house the next day. This notion of there's always, you know, a seat at the table for more people. There's always food to share. You're always in a very kind of secure environment. And that is something I kind of took for granted when I was growing up there. In fact, I tell the story about when my father finally got his transplant in 1996 and he had to leave immediately to go to the United States to New York for his transplant operation. And one of our very, very close Saudi friends called my mother and said, should we take the girls? And me and my siblings, you know, I was, you know, nine. My sister was 11. My younger sister was four. There's three of you. And my brother, so four of us total. And I and my mother, and we were all already scared of all this change. My so that our friends call and say, Why don't the girls move in with us, you know, while you guys are in the midst of this transplant operation? And I remember we were all so scared. And we said to my mom, No, 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 we don't want to go. So on the phone, she makes up this excuse and she says, Oh, you know, the kids have their exams and their desks and their bookcases are here. So we're okay. And the next morning there's a knock on our door and it's a moving company. And my mother's like, what are you doing here? And they're like, oh, we're here to something about books and, you know, bookshelves and desks. We're moving. And sure enough, we, they moved the furniture into this family friend's home. We lived with them while my, while my parents were in the United States. How long? 
it was probably about six weeks, if I remember correctly, maybe maybe two months. But this idea again of feeling Oma. the Oma. So when you leave and you come to the United States, and if you had a British-centric uh, or British fabric in the educational thing over there. But why did you come back to the U.S.? Could you say, I'm an American, I want to be educated? Why don't you go to England and go to school? Well, I had that choice, actually. My older brother and sister chose England, and I always wanted to come to the United States. You know, back when I was growing up in Saudi, everything that was sort of aspirational, everything that was considered the best was American. You know, that that is, you know, back then, America did seem like it, and it was the sole super- power in the world. Absolutely felt like it was a paradise. And so we'd come here for the summers. We would stock up on all the latest magazines. We would have these bootleg movies that we would take back, all the Tom Cruise movies and, (laughs) you know, like Beverly Hills 902. He's number one everywhere. (laughs) He was certainly number one, you know, back then. And Ralph Macchio and the Karate Kid. I'm thinking of like all of these, you know, and everything. And I I write about this. You know, my parents always raised and said, look, you're American and you're Muslim. And in part because they came from two countries that were at war. So they didn't try to put the burden of that identity that you have to choose whether you're Indian or Pakistani or even Saudi, you know, given the fact that we lived there and, you know, felt a deep connection to it. You're an American and you're a Muslim. And so I remember we would go all over the world. And that was one of the great beauties of having parents who were academics. They had summers off. It was one of also the great advantages of being a university professor there because my parents in the early years, in fact, I don't think I ever shared this, they would get four first-class tickets every summer to go wherever. And so we would, you know, take these tickets and we would go to Europe and Asia. And in part because my father was sick and he wanted to explore the world, he and he didn't know how much time he had. had There's benefits to having been so sick. I mean, these were secrets from us. We did not know how ill he was. You know, I tell this story about, you know, my father was barely 100 pounds. And to me, he was a superhero. You know, Mm -hmm. he was the greatest, strongest man on the planet. But he would, every spring, he would say, okay, where do you want to go this year? And he'd say, okay, let's do Asia. And he said, okay, We'd pull out a map, and we'd have to call the airlines back then. All six of you, wherever he wherever wherever you know wherever, and we would wherever you voted on wherever we voted on, and then we'd have to help plan it. And my mom did all the schlepping and all the lifting, and you know my father would be wheeled around in a wheelchair. But it was having number one, it was a way for us to spend time together, and number two, it was a way to explore the world. And I remember my my mother tells the story of how we would land in the middle of nowhere, sometimes in Shannon, Ireland, you know, on our way to you know refuel somewhere. And I would get up and turn to my mother and say, is it America yet? And I have a whole chapter in my book. I mean, that is what, you know, the excitement, the feeling, the, you know, ice cream running down my hands. You know, when we visited our family in Elmhurst, Queens, it was paradise. It was heaven. You could go anywhere in the world and landing in JFK was the highlight. So when you came to the U.S., when you returned to the U.S. to go to college, you go and you go into politics, but you study journalism as a major and poli-sci as the minor did you? Most people I know, my point is that they go to GW for one thing only. They don't go there to play the violin. Hmm. They don't go there to get a scholarship for some sport they play. They go there because they got politics in their blood. Was that you? No. I, was, I went to GW to become Christian Amanpour. So I mean, journalism I, was the goal? Journalism was the goal. Why? It was—and, you know, I say this all the time now when I—especially I, when I meet younger women— I was sitting on the floor of our house 
and watch this brand new thing in Saudi Arabia. And this is the, you know, Operation Desert Storm, Persian Gulf War, and turn on this brand new thing called CNN International. And I see this woman and she was brilliant and she we was all saw fearless. That woman. Yeah. I mean, it was I looked at her and she looked like me. She looked like she came from my part of the world. And she gave this amorphous, you know, I went from everything. I think when I was younger, you know, I, my, my dad, I think, always thought I was going to be a writer. He would, we, you know, say that to me, like, write, write, write. I was a voracious reader. I went through a period where I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I was really very dramatic. People would come to our house and I would say, do you want to listen to my new poem? And my siblings would roll their eyes. Like, I was a performer growing up. I had a lot of sort of confidence. I, I loved to perform. So I think I went through the period of like, I want to be an actor. I want to be a singer. I want to be out there. I wanted to be a ballerina. Interesting how you ended up, though, but we're going to get there. I, I went through all these different phases, but then, and I must have been, no, I was 15. I saw her and I said, that's it. That is who I want to be. And I was singularly focused on being her. And that is why I applied to GW. And I got I your went degree to in journalism. And I got my degree in journalism. No graduate degree. I did not get a graduate. It's one of my regrets, but I did not get a graduate degree. When you end, when you do the four years at GW and you get a degree in journalism, is journalism the, still the goal as no, you walk out the door? My what changed? junior year, my friend Ronnie Hibbert came to me and said, listen, I've got this great internship at the White House. I'm interning for Mike McCurry, who was then the White House press secretary. And she actually said to me, she says, you know, when you watch anybody giving a, a you know, a statement from that podium in the, in the press room, our office is right behind. And I thought, oh, my God. How better to become Christian be Amanpour than being behind that wall? But, you know, chance, you know, fate, luck, whatever it was, I got accepted. So my friend Ronnie picks up the internship application for me. I think basically filled it out for me. I gave them my, you know, the essays that I used to apply to GW, sent it in, was accepted, but I wasn't put in the press office. I was put in the First Lady's policy office. Where did you first lay eyes on Hillary Clinton and you actually talked to her and shook her hand and So she doesn't her? she doesn't remember this. Well, there's no reason she'd remember this. Of but the first time I laid eyes on her and shook her hand was the night of Bill Clinton's re-election, 1996. So I was a White House intern, and they, you know, the DNC had made accommodations that if interns wanted to go on this charter plane at the last minute to Little Rock, Arkansas, for election night, talk about politics on steroids. I had Now, Alec, I wasn't registered to vote. I had never—I mean, I grew up in a country that was a monarchy. Obviously, there was no—so I, you know— I went from zero to a thousand. And so I get on this plane with a bunch of interns. We had to pay, you know, write a check for, I think, $250 for our ticket. Land in Little Rock. We're wandering around outside. And I'm just kind of just in awe. I look up and there's Wolf Blitzer. I look up there's intoxicating. So you meet her. So I, you know, uh, the election night's called. I play my way to Little Rock. The election's called for Bill Clinton and the energy and the electricity and they come out on stage and then they come down to work a rope line and I was four or five people deep in. And I remember leaning forward through the crowd and shaking her hand. And she looked right at me and she said, thank you. And I and I have to tell you, I can't even count the number of rope lines I have walked with Hillary Clinton since then. But I remember that moment. I remember how it felt. I remember how important it felt. I remember that I felt like I made this connection. And so every time somebody would say to me, I just want to say hello to her. I want to shake her hand. I got it because I remember that first moment. And, and for some people, it's a, it really is a once in a lifetime to meet a president or a first lady. It was really exciting. Huma Abedin. If you enjoy conversations with accomplished women in politics, check out my episode with United States Congresswoman Katie Porter. You know, I think there is an attitude that 
you know, sort of people are entitled to have Republican representation here. What they're entitled to is good representation, right? People who listen to them, people who fight for them, people who are not corrupt. And that can come in, you know, Democratic or Republican forms. To hear more of my conversation with Katie Porter, go to heresthething.org. After the break, Huma Abedin shares the tremendous impact of Hillary Clinton's 2016 election loss. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Encore Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman, about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant, about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Huma Abedin is fiercely intelligent, warm, and impeccably credentialed. While surely anyone would be lucky to employ her, I was curious why she stayed in the Clinton camp for 26 years. You know, I'm getting emotional because I'm sitting at this table. She sat where you're sitting right now to do my first podcast interview after the book came out. And she's one of the people who really encouraged me to write my story. That wound, to some degree, does not go away. I think it is such a travesty and a loss for this country. Tragedy. I agree with you that uh, she was not president in 2016 and how different our country and the world would have been. And it is their loss. And to see how politics has descended into this sort of really a a cult of personality. I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and he was like, it's almost like you need to be a celebrity to even a rich celebrity to even, you know, run for office and take all that apart. You know, you actually have asked me something no one's ever asked me. 
I kind of fell into politics. You're right. I mean, I wanted to be a journalist, fell into politics. But why? It's because when I started being in the orbit of Bill and Hillary Clinton, forget who they were, mm-hmm. that he was the most, you know, the leader of the free world. She was the most powerful woman in the world. For them, it was all about the mission and the service and how do I make, I know it sounds cliche and it sounds cheesy, but there are people who get up every single day and say, how do I make other people's lives better? Mm -hmm. And I think of all the things that I have done. There's not a space I have been, a place I have been. There isn't a person I haven't met that I want to meet. And it still does not feel the way it feels when you're out on a campaign, when you're in government. And feel and know that you can make somebody's life better, that you can do something. Doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. And that is something I learned from her and to see her do it. Part of her thing, as you well know, she's never really thought it was about her. And I think a lot of politicians and maybe even people in your line of work, they get into it. There's some degree of whether it's narcissism or some degree of, you know, trying to prove one's own value. But she just she just wants to do the work. And I always said the day I got up and she wasn't doing something interesting or I didn't want to go to work or I didn't want to talk to her, I would quit. And and the thing that is so insane to me is that after that election, which broke us, I mean, I, I write about it in 2016, and there are days that it mm. comes back and, you know, it hurts. haunts me. It hurts. Like, it hurts, like, physically. Hurts I was around me. her this summer. Liz Robbins, we went to that <laughs> right, dinner with Liz course. and Bill. This is my friend for our listeners who she has a dinner. And Bill is there. A couple summers ago, Bill is lecturing us on North Korea. And he's talking about, now, when the president of the United States is telling you what he wants you to know, like a little digest, a little synopsis about North Korean policy, you are, I don't need to eat, forget about dinner. And Liz Robbins is behind his back. She's behind Bill's back going like this and cutting her throat like this, going, you got to tell him to stop. Dinner is ready. And I'm looking at her like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, I'm going to tell Bill to stop (laughs) talking about North Korea. And when you're with him, you get a civics lesson. Mm. You get a political history lesson. Mm. And we did with her the same thing. But she's just, I don't know, what this ineffable thing in my business where she just, she's like Spencer Tracy. Yes. She's just so decent. She has a few, th- radical empathy, number right. one. Right. Number two, she has this, she has like, a, she says this problem solving gene. You know, I think so much of it. And, you know, people, and she's motivated really by not anything else. I don't think she cares about being rich and famous. I don't think she's mm. ever cared about that. Right. But I think knowing about her, own mother's her own mother had a very very difficult childhood was basically abandoned by her parents and you know her victory speech in 2016 she was going to end with this story about she tells a story about her mother who was put on a train cross country her parents didn't want her and her little sister so these two little girls under 10 put on a train to go cross country to move in with her their grandparents who also didn't really want them and she said you know she imagined being on that train sitting next to her mother and saying, it's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And you're going to grow up and you're going to have a daughter and she will be the first woman president of the United States. And, um, in the end, she was, she was, and she was, and that's why I I like to remind people. I also like to remind people when people say, well, why couldn't you guys, why didn't you guys have the energy and sort of, why didn't you have all this energy behind you? And I said, I'd like to remind people that 3 million people more than her opponent voted for her, that she did have that energy and enthusiasm. And, you know, the forces, I do believe she won in 2016. And um, she did win in 2016. You know, one other thing that you and she have in common, you were both people who uh, your husbands let you down. That's my way of putting it. Your husbands let you down. And in your case, you overcome that. You deal with that in, in your way. And 
you're very honest about it in the book, and you keep going. Mm. Crisis management has been a fundamental pillar of your career. You've worked with people who've been in crisis. And Hillary Clinton is someone who's been attacked in a way that is as ugly. And so with you, professionally, with the Clintons for many years, in your personal life, a lot of crisis management for you. What prepared you for that? I think my childhood. I think the way I was raised, the people who raised me, the you know whether it was conscious or subconscious. I mean, this idea that I had a mother who was a superhero. You know, who my father was throwing up after his dialysis sessions, and she was in the bathroom cleaning him up and you know propping him up and putting him at the these breakfast table. These were very table. real. I mean, these were very and you know living in Saudi Arabia, living in a different cultures, living you know sometimes in very frustrating moments. And always thinking, all right, tomorrow's going to be better. Tomorrow's going to be better. And then obviously dealing with my father's death, that was hard. You know, I was in denial for a while. It took two years for me to actually say out loud to people my father's dead. I was basically just, you know. So I think that to some extent there was crisis all around me kind of growing up. And I figured out how to live and dance. And not only live through it, my mother tells me move on. I mean, my, my mother says my father's favorite memory from my childhood is when I would come out of school, I would skip out of school and he would call me his gazelle. It's one of the reasons I share in the book this story about the first time I staff Hillary and her speech is forgotten in the car and she calls me onto stage and he, I'm this kid, I'm barely 21, don't have the speech. And that was the moment, the moment where you basically either fall apart or say, I got it. I can fix this. And I fixed it in that moment. That was 26 years ago. And I have always figured it out. And I actually think I have figured out that I'm pretty good at it. And I don't know if that's like a marketable skill anywhere outside of politics. I'm working on that right now. But it's experience. Whose idea was the book? The book was Anna Winter's idea. No! Yes. Yes. It was 10 days after the election. I didn't want to get out of bed. And she says, let's go to dinner. And we go to the theater and and then go to dinner. And I was— What show did you see? It was at the public. And it was Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things. And uh, and cried and cried and cried. And then we go to dinner. And she says, I know what you should do. You should write your story. It's a great story. And I said, no, it's not. I'm not going to do it. And the next day I go to Hillary and tell Hillary. And as the idea, she's like, brilliant idea. You should do it. It's a good story. I was really in denial. It was only when I went to lunch with a man getting advice on what to do next in my life and told him, oh, some people think I should write my book. And he was like, why would you do that? And I said, well, people have suggested without, it's a Without good revealing story. the man, yeah. who obviously you're shielding, what, what, what does he do for a living? Uh, what career does he have? Uh, he's also a crisis management consultant oh, really? to an extent. I mean, you know, he's in sort of the business of, you know, politics and communications. And, um, and he says, listen, I just don't think you could ever fully explain why Hillary lost. And I don't think anyone wants to read a anymore about all that scandal. And it was when he used that word scandal, I walked out of that restaurant and I was writing the book. It was somebody telling me the story was unworthy that made me write. And when I, when I started writing, it just poured, it poured out of me. I loved, loved, loved the writing process. And, you know, and look, because you asked about Anthony and my ex-husband letting me down, which he did. He was on this podcast. He was on this podcast. Yeah, that's right. He was. And, you know, I... One of the first husband and wife couple of people we've had. (laughs) I should have brought him along. We're, we've now, we're now talking about doing some interviews together because people cannot, are still in shock. You know, I get stopped on the street all the time saying, oh, I'm sure you rue the day that you met that man. In fact, somebody said that to me, you know, when I launched the paperback to her a couple of weeks ago. He's like, I'm sure you rue the day you met that man. And I stopped this person and I said, you know, actually, this man gave me the greatest gift in my life. And that is my son. <laughs> my minion. And so, no. And I, and I think part of it is 
people didn't <clears throat> understand what was happening. And, you know, I, in the, only now, years later, we, we have a much greater appreciation for mental health and addiction. And, and I, you know, back then, only certain, like, I felt like our friends kind of in the creative world and Hollywood really understood what was happening. And, you know, uh, but in politics, I mean, to have the first, what I argue was sort of Twitter sex scandal, it was unheard of back then. People didn't know what to do. And so we but were I just... But I think also with him, if I may just interject, yeah, so I think with him, the, the thing is that... We have so few people now, in my estimation, who are really, really special in politics. And your former husband was somebody who people had a lot of belief in him. He was, you know, at one point, the chapter about Anthony was called Icarus because he was, I mean, he really was. Smart guy. Really smart, really, and as you said, you know, he was unique. He was a unicorn in a way that he was progressive. He was feisty. He was smart. He understood the policy. But more than that, he had solutions. And, you know, until he ran for mayor in 2013 and obviously lost, he'd never lost an election before, Mm -hmm. too, to that point. And so to not then understand the behavior, which I did not. Alec, I'm being very honest. I mm-hmm. did not, right. as somebody who grew up so disciplined and with such moderation, you, right. you know, so, you know, I'd just knock off this behavior and not understanding that he'd really fallen into. And, you know, his, all of this compulsiveness was really kind of triggered by Facebook and Twitter that all had just started in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And then just fall. It, it really, it's a, you know, talk about another tragedy. I think he let down a lot of people, not yeah. just you. Yeah. He had people who really believed in him because in the Democratic Party, we just don't have enough tough people. Yeah. Now, you've been dealing with the political press your entire professional career. Mm-hmm. And some of them have been, you know, remarkably brutal and unfair. Who in your life, from the conservative media, when you dealt with them, did you respect and did you like and thought they covered her fairly? Wow. That is a question as as sad as to say that I don't know the answer to. Mm. I'm not sure I could give you a name off the top of my head. Isn't that horrible? Coming from you, that's pretty damning. But we lived, I mean, but we lived in a different, you know, you've stumped me. I mean, honestly, I can't, I think we were always on guard. And to the point that you just made about fake news versus, you know, this notion of you're entitled to your, you know, your own opinion, but not your own facts, that's out the door now. Now it's sort of, you know, what is fact, what is fiction? And I struggle to come up with a single name of somebody who I thought was fair. Look, we had challenges with the New York Times where there were stories that were just filled with inaccuracies. Huma Abedin. If you're enjoying this conversation, tell a friend and be sure to follow Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, Huma Abedin ponders whether a political candidacy is in her future. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart, and we're back with a new season of my podcast. This season will be even more revealing and more personal, with more entrepreneurs, more trailblazers, more live events, more Martha, and more questions from you. I'm talking to my cosmetic dermatologist, Dr. Dan Belkin, about the secrets behind my skincare. Walter Isaacson, about the geniuses who change the world. Encore Jane, about creating a billion-dollar startup. Dr. Elisa Pressman, about the five basic strategies to help parents raise good humans. Florence Fabricant, about the authenticity in the world of food writing. Be sure to tune in to season two of the Martha Stewart podcast. Listen and subscribe to the Martha Stewart podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Huma Abedin was vice chair of Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. After such an unexpected and painful loss, I was curious what she thought it would take for the United States to finally elect a female president. I think this is a generational thing. I mean, I'm raising a son, and I am raising my son not just to respect women, but not fear their power. And I think it's conscious and subconscious, this notion of when you close your eyes and you see somebody who's in charge— Do you ever see it as a woman? No, you see it as a man. And how do we change that? And I think you and I are, you know, of a generation that that's it's going to be very hard to change. And it's proven an election over and over again. I mean, look at this battle of Kathy Hochul is going through right now in New York. I mean, it is I guarantee you if she was not a woman, I'm not sure she would it would be as neck and neck. I agree. But it's women and it's and this notion of ambition. You know, the idea that people always look at us whenever we are the victim, when we are in service of. I mean, Hillary was always most popular when, you know, during impeachment in her husband's administration and then when she served Obama. And the minute she says, I'm in, her approval numbers just go down significantly. And that, that Why? Why? It is the minute a woman is seen as being ambitious for power or being in charge, that all of a sudden something subconsciously, and this is not just men, this is men and women, subconsciously yeah, clicks women, off in our head saying, no, 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 that can't happen. Women who who still support the patriarchy, I find that mesmerizing. W- women who are enemies of candidacies like Hillary's and so forth. Just we would knock on doors early on in the primary, and women you know, in Iowa would say, oh, I'm going to caucus for Hillary, I'm going to caucus for Hillary, wink, wink, but, you know, making sure their husbands didn't hear. And then sure enough, on caucus day, they just did what their husbands were doing or told them to do whatever it is. It's just, it is, it is a generational thing that we have to change. Are you going to run? You know, part of Please the Please don't tell me you haven't thought about it. I, well, I, I haven't really. What I People idolize you. 
that's your not true. No, oh, that, your demographic but, idolizes well, you. Well, I so this is my year of saying yes. I'm doing all kinds of crazy things this year that I would have never said yes to two years ago. For a year example. Ago. I mean, this, I'm doing interviews, I'm giving speeches, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm just exploring the world. I'm seeing things and meeting people. I'm just doing things I would have in the olden days. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for a social life. I don't have time. You know, it was always about work. And now I'm just, you know, finding more time to do all those things. So I hate when I say, okay, I'm definitely not running for office. I don't see a path. I don't mm. see that I would, but I'm in this never say never, but I just, I don't, I don't see it. I'm also agnostic about. And you've never seen the path, have you? The woman that wanted to be Christian, I'm on poor one, working right. for Hillary Clinton no one for has 26 ever, years. That's, that's right. In the sliding that's doors right. biography right. of Huma so Abedin, you've never seen the path. No. You're like me in the sense that my whole life has been, people go A, B, or C. Yeah. And I'll sit there and go, which do I really mm. want? A, B, or C? And the answer is D. Something that wasn't even on the table 18 months ago. That's the train I got on. Well, that's the cliff. You know, my, the book was originally, the prologue was originally called The Cliff. I'm kind of standing on the precipice of that cliff, and I chose to jump. And I always envisioned that it was going to be really bad. Jumping just meant hitting the ground, and how much pain was that going to be? And but it's an opportunity as well. Yeah. And this is just my opinion. I mean, I'm not trying to give you advice here. I'm not trying to encourage you to run for office. But the point is, is that it's an opportunity. Even if you lose, you don't go into it thinking you're going to win. It's a chance for you to put on the record right. what you believe about That's this right. country and this government. That's right. So two more quick things. One is you're developing a television series based on your memoir. And you went ahead, and I can't believe you wouldn't cast the unspeakably unattractive and untalented <laughs> Frida Pinto to play you. I mean, what the hell are you thinking? Frida Pinto is going to play you in the TV show? I was stunned that she wanted to do it. You know, I'm a big admirer of hers, but more than that, I was, and I met, She's a wonderful I met with a lot of people, and I didn't know her. I'd never met her in all these years, but she got the book. She got the story. She got the character, and I think while I'm gratified a lot of people have read the book, I think a lot more people will watch it on screen, and this, if there is some sort of service or interest in the book. I mean, I, I'm just beyond thrilled that she's doing it, and I can't wait for oh, it so to lucky. be. Oh, she's amazing. I'm so, she's amazing. I, I she's do a real movie star lucky. who can act. Now, if we're going to end, I want you to read, read that for us. Read my dad's letter. Okay. This is a letter. Tell, tell us about this letter. Where is this so, from? So, this, this is a note I found just buried in my dad's papers years after he died. And I thought it was a message, you know, from beyond. And I think it was just uh, something, you know, he would scribble these notes down and he had a folder called Random Reflections. And this was from his Random Reflections folder. And it's titled, Thought for the Day. As an American, a Muslim... And as a member of a fairly decent family, a commitment should be a commitment. Whatever the provocation, it should not influence you to act in an unbecoming manner. You have to be fair, honest, and direct. If you can't stand the heat, then as Truman said, get out of the kitchen. But your exit should be graceful, decent, and above board. Let others do what they will. You are responsible in the first instance to yourself, your principles and values, and ultimately to God, Yahweh, Allah, your loving father. And I feel as though this was a note that he left for us to remind us what's important about how to walk through this earth. And you've lived that. I've tried to. You've lived that. And I want you to know, see, the thing about you is I'm going to end with the blessing and the curse, the sweet and the sour. And that is you are a very 
special and gifted person. But of course, with that comes tremendous burdens as well and tremendous demands. It's a blessing and a curse. You have a lot of burdens on you. This is choking me up here. This by is the way. so kind. And Thank you. And, and you have, and, and with it comes a burden, a burden. But we hope we're going to see no. more of this woman that's in this book. I want to see. I can't wait to see what she's going to do. Well, from your lips to God's ears, I just, I'm so, I'm excited, thrilled, terrified, all those things. But I'm continuing my year of saying yes. Huma Abedin. This episode was recorded at CDM Studios in New York City. We're produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Danielle Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeart Radio. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, I'm Vanessa Bayer and this is my brother Jonah. And we are so excited to have you hear the latest season of our nostalgia-themed podcast, How Did We Get Weird? Not only do you get to know me and my brother, you get to know the stories that made us the absolutely rad people we are today. Like you, Jonah, who's a music person and also a mental health counselor. And you, Vanessa, who is an actress, comedian, and I think you even wrote a children's book. Wow. I sure did. Check out our episodes where we've welcomed hilarious guests like our friend Andy Samberg. That's it. That's really it. And Queen Casey Wilson. I really went cart before the horse. I said, I think I have an opportunity to interview Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> As a high school student. Plus legendary sisters Amber Ruffin and Lacey Lamar. Top. You would pull the bag out and then we would eat okay. the eat all the leftover the leftover chocolate chips, which was a lot. Then you'd roll the oh, barrel up, so to, up the hill. And then one of us would get inside the barrel and they'd push you down. And we've also had an amazing guests like Mike the Miz, Jason Isbell, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker of Slater Kinney, and many more. And you do not want to miss out on our funny segments like Change.Dork. <laughs> Change.Dork. And congratulations, you played yourself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Listen to our podcast, How Did We Get Weird, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.